Our text this morning is Luke 9, 51 through 56. Coming to the end of Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 56. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Let's pray. Father, I ask that your word would cut down uh, deep inside of us to reveal the thoughts and intentions of our hearts, that we might uh, see ourselves clearly, that we might know where uh, repentance is necessary in our life. And Father, I pray that we would run to Christ and see his forgiveness and that you might conform us more into your image, Father, that you would set our eyes on you in faith. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The question of the title of the sermon, my face is set on fill in the blank. Where are you looking? What is the direction of your life? Uh, most of you know I'm a bow hunter. That's one of uh, my favorite hobbies. And uh, one of the tools that is a new tool that a bow hunter has at his disposal is an iPhone that has satellite images of almost any land you could ever want to see. So uh, there's many nights where I know in the morning I'm going to go hunting, but uh, I want to find a new spot. And uh, one of the places I like to hunt is Sand Lake. Sand Lake is vast and big, a lot of cattails, a uh, lot of different areas that are kind of tough to get into. But sometimes... Uh, and a lot of times, against my better judgment, I'll pick a spot that I want to get to. I've never been there before. I can see the trees uh, from the satellite image. I can see where I'm going to park, and I kind of plan my route. Uh, but I've never been on the ground. I've never seen it. And I put a stand on my back, and I get in there in the dark, try to find the tree I want to get into, and hopefully... It's as good a spot as it looks like from satellite image. You can actually see deer trails through cattails from these pictures. It's amazing. But there was one particular morning that I parked my car. I had a walk on a gravel road um, about a mile and a half to get to the point where I was going to go off-road and head to this tree belt. Well, 
it was real clear, you know, it's pitch black out, and I got my phone, and I'm looking, I'm like, all right, there's my targeted spot right there. And I'm just going to keep my eyes set in that direction. I kind of oriented myself, and I'm going to walk through this grass that's about this tall. I'm just going to end up in my tree. Well, little did I know, uh, Sand Lake had cut down trees within the several years before at about this height in this tall grass down. And, and what I was thought, thought I was walking through was just, you know, easy grass. I kept running into stumps that I could not see at all. And they were everywhere. And I fell down several times. One time I fell down, the stand that was on my back hit me in the back of the head. I was getting flustered. I got halfway there. I realized my binoculars had fallen off. So I'm going back looking for my binoculars. I'm sweating. You don't want to sweat because deer can smell you. I wasn't having a good morning. I'm a... And then I get up in the tree, sun comes up, and I'm just like, look at what I just walked through. <laughs> I could have easily just skirted that if I could have seen it. But my eyes were set on a point, which made my walk really difficult. What we're going to see in this text is Jesus Christ had his eyes set on a particular plan. And that plan was not skirting this hidden tree belt with all these obstacles, but it was going right through the middle of it, the heart of it, the hard part of it. And as we're going to see, uh, especially next week, he calls uh, his disciples. He says, anyone who sets his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Someone who doesn't get this vision, this direction, and stay the course is not fit for the kingdom of God. Next week we're going to look at, if you're considering taking the easy route and going back, you're done. But if you see the prize, then you'll get through the difficulty. And... Uh, for us to have our heads set in one place as a fallen human being is difficult. It doesn't come naturally to us. In Colossians 3, verse 1, here's what Paul says. Paul says, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above not on earth, on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then he describes all these sins that we're to fight against. He's saying if your hope is set in heaven at the right hand of God, keep your eyes fixed on him. If you keep your eyes down here on earth, you're going to fulfill all these fleshly desires. But if your eyes set on God, you're going to put to death the things that do not matter. If you know one day 
you're going to be with him in glory, then it affects the way you live down here on earth. That's the mindset. We saw this in Matthew 16. Uh, and or I shouldn't say we saw this. You can see this in Matthew 16, verse 21. When Jesus just says that uh, Peter just confesses that Jesus is the Christ. And then Jesus says this, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. We're going to go through the difficulty and then resurrection. That's what's going to happen to me, Christ says. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, it shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, for you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. You would have me avoid the cross. And if I would listen to you, Peter would spend eternity in hell. Without the cross, there is no forgiveness. Peter was thinking like you and I would naturally think in our flesh. No, we'll go another way. We will take the easy route. So we're at the turning point in the Gospel of Luke. From verse 1 all the way up to chapter 9, verse 50, it was all about the coming of Jesus Christ culminating in the transfiguration of Christ. From verse 51 to the end is about Jesus' going. The first part was about His coming that culminates in Peter, James, and John being able to see Christ in this glorified state that was prophesying of the future state of Christ to them. But now things change. Now you could describe the rest of Luke as Jesus and his disciples walking through the valley of the shadow of death that leads to the cross. Now this journey from Galilee to Jerusalem would only take a few days. It's going to take them a few months as they, significant time as they're taking their time, but he's not going back to Galilee. We see that in the very first verse of our text, Luke 9, verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, this is about his going, it's a transition. Luke is now pointing us towards the cross. The word taken up is in reference to the events that are laid before him from being lifted up on the cross to his resurrection and ascension. I think Luke is encompassing all those things. But when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go 
to Jerusalem. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. And the charge of this sermon is going to be for you to set your face on Christ and love your enemies. And I think you'll see this in the text. To set your face on Christ who will fulfill all of his promises. What does it mean that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem? His eyes were fixed upon the word of God, the prophecies written of him, the plan of his father. The Greek here, sterizo prosopin, sterizo is to set, fix, or establish so that something will not move or be budged. And then prosopon, a face that's focused in a certain direction. Jesus was not going to be budged from heading to Jerusalem on this course to fulfill what God had called him to do. Now this is very devotional to your heart and to my heart. And it's very critical to our faith. Because if Jesus Christ can be knocked off course, then you can't believe His promises. But if Jesus Christ stays on course, and He cannot be knocked off course, then every future promise, as well as the past promises, are secure for us in Christ. I'll never leave you or forsake you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, would I have told you? How can you believe him? How can you be sure he's going to come back? How can you be sure that you're going to be resurrected and have a body like he said we would? That he was the first fruits of those who would be resurrected. If Christ can be knocked off course, you can't believe his promises. But here we see a difficult course set before Christ. He set his face towards to go to Jerusalem. Listen to the, how the different translations speak of this, just so you can feel the weight of it. The NASB says he was determined to go to Jerusalem. The King James Version says he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. The NIV says Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He's deciding and he's not changing his mind about the course that he has set for himself. Uh, that the Father has set for him, I should say, that he willingly followed Jesus loved the Father's will more than his fleshly desires. He was really human. He really got hungry. He really got tired. When he got cut, he really bled and it really hurt. He really had friends. He was human 
And yet, he set his life in a direction that meant lots of difficulty, lots of pain, lots of suffering. And one reason why he set his face towards Jerusalem is because he came to fulfill his father's will, his father's plan. In Revelation 13.8, you read, And all who dwell on earth will worship it, speaking of the beast, everyone whose name who has not been written, now get this, before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. There's a book that existed before the foundation of the world that had a title. The book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. God planned that He would send His Son before any person ever stepped foot on the earth. It was in the Father's heart. It was His plan. It wasn't a mistake. The liberal scholars, or you watch the History Channel, or you watch CNN do something on Jesus, and they talk about Him as a man who kind of got a big following and got himself in trouble and ended up dead. Baloney. It was the Father's plan. In John 17, or 10.17, Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it upward again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. No one against Christ's will brought Him to the cross. He willingly went there because He loved the Father's will perfectly. In the flesh, in the pain, in the anguish of imagining taking the sins of the world on himself, he says, Father, take this cup from me. That's an honest prayer from a human being who's about ready to bear the sins of the world. But in his spirit, in his faith, he says, but not my will, your will be done. He set his face to go to the cross. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. The Father gave His Son. And the Son willingly went to the cross. Romans 8.32, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? It was the Father's plan to send Christ. In John 6.37, we read this, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I'll raise Him up on the last day. Jesus said, I came to fulfill the work the Father's given me to do. Secondly, He knew 
that the Scripture must be fulfilled. He understood Scripture, how it can't be broken. Heaven and earth will pass away, but not one jot or tittle will pass away from God's law. Not the smallest little mark in the Greek language will pass away. That's the how God's word is. In fact, if you go way back to Genesis 3, verse 15, after Adam and Eve sinned and God curses the snake, he says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It was prophesied way back, the very beginning verses of Scripture, that the child born of the woman was going to be struck in a way that wasn't finally going to be fatal. It was But then he rose, and so his heel was struck. It was prophesied way back in Genesis 3. And then the animals that were sacrificed to clothe their nakedness was speaking forth of what was going to come in Christ. I'll never forget the first time Psalm 22 came to life for me. A thousand years before Jesus was born. If you have your Bibles, turn here and you're going to read this with me. David prayed and his prayer was a prophecy of the crucifixion of Christ. Jesus yells out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the way you located a certain place in Scripture was by saying the first line of that text. And Jesus from the cross is yelling out, Psalm 22! Psalm 22! And here's what we read. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, my God, I cry by day, And you do not answer, and by night I find no rest, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and your father, and you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by people. You see, Jesus is saying, as the sins of the world are on me, and the father turns his face away from his son, and his wrath is being poured out towards him. Jesus is saying, read Psalm 22. And then in verse 7 it says, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. This is what the Gospels say happened. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. The very words of mocking were prophesied thousands of years before Christ. Yet, you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust in my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. There is no one to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. 
I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Anyone who's ever been crucified asked for water, asked for something to drink because your mouth was dry. Your tongue sticks to your mouth. Your body comes out of joint. And then we read the words, for dogs encompass me like a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. What do you think of God's word? 700 years before crucifixions ever invented. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and they cast lots. And for my clothing, they cast lots. The details of his crucifixion prophesied in Scripture. Just recently, we've read through Isaiah 52 and 53, so I'm not going to do that. For the sake of time this morning, the Scriptures always come true. And there's no way Jesus is not going to the cross. Scripture must be fulfilled. In Luke 13, 31, we read, at the very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Go, Jesus, go. He said to them, go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. I'm going to do my ministry now of healing, but I'm going to Jerusalem. He's mocking Israel. Jerusalem's always killed the prophets. I want to be right that I die here. I have to get to Jerusalem to die. John 7.30, they were seeking to arrest him but no one laid a hand on him because his hour, the hour had not come. John 8.20, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not come. Matthew 26.54, right after Peter cuts off the ear of the man that came to arrest Jesus, Jesus says, but how then should scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so. And then a few verses later, at that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out against the robber, against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching. You did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Even that was prophesied. Zechariah 13.7, Awake, O, o sword, against my shepherd. Strike the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus is saying this. Isn't God's sovereignty amazing? Isn't His word amazing? 
I taught in your temples. You let me go. You hated me. You hated me, but you didn't kill me until right now. You're going to do it. Why? Scripture must be fulfilled. God's word is never broken. Luke twenty-two thirty-seven. For I tell you that scripture must be fulfilled in me. Acts thirteen twenty-seven. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him or understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. Although they found no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in the tomb. Everything they did to Jesus was a fulfillment of Scripture and prophecy. In fact, Acts 2.23, you know, some people reject the sovereignty of God over all things because bad things happen in the world. Sin happens in the world. I'll never forget John Piper pointing this out when he said, what's the greatest sin that ever took place on the face of the earth? Was it not killing the author of life, the Son of God? And yet here's what we read of that. Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then in chapter 4, Acts 4.27, he says this, Truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had, has predestined to take place. The greatest sin in the world God was sovereign over. Herod and Pontius Pilate were not robots. They willingly, out of the evil of their hearts, had him crucified and fulfilled the plan of God predestined before time. God is sovereign over the good things and God is sovereign over the bad things. Sin does not come from Him. He's sovereign over it. All of it. There is no mistakes in God's sovereign purposes. Point one, set your face on Christ who will fulfill His promises. Jesus went to that cross. He died on that cross. He bore the wrath of God for you. He ascended to the right hand of God. He's coming to judge the living and the dead. And He promised His bride that He's coming for you. Now here's the thing. There may be a lot of trials from here till then. And where you're looking where your head is focused, if you're looking at the world with all the changing things that can happen in a fallen world, all the insecurities of change, if that's where your head 
is directed, you will seek to live for your own flesh rather than for the will of God. But God calls you to trust Him, to trust Christ, to see how His promises are always fulfilled. If you don't believe that, you won't set your mind on Christ. If you don't believe you're going to be glorified like Him, then you'll seek glory down here on earth from man. Second, and this point's going to be much quicker, set your face on your identity in Christ. How did Jesus love his enemies? We're going to see him loving his enemies in just a moment here. How did he show mercy to those who reject him and, and show mercy to those who hated him? Well, here's what made Jesus different from every human being on the face of the earth. He was secure in his identity. He knew who he was. In Luke 3.22, if you remember at his baptism, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form and like a dove, and a voice came from heaven and said, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Jesus knew that. The very next scene, he goes into the wilderness and what does Satan challenge him on? If you are the Son of God, his identity. But if the Father is pleased with the Son, then his worth or value, which matters to every human being, that cup is filled and overflowing. If God is for you, who can be against you? If God fills your cup up and you're overflowing, you can't fit more water in. But if you try to suck your identity out of the people around you, then you're going to be nice to those who respond well to you and you're going to punish those who don't because you're going to try to use them to fill up your identity. But Jesus said, love your enemies in the Sermon on the Mount, but he doesn't say that to the wide group. The Sermon on the Mount starts out, he's talking to the large group of disciples, some believers, some not. There's a big group following him. But then he says, those who have ears to hear, listen to this. I say, love your enemies. The reason why he doesn't say that to the large group is they can't. But the person who is saved, who has ears to hear, who realizes that when you trust Christ, your value is gifted to you by God. Your identity is full in Him. Then you can love your enemies. Because the person that says all these things against you, you don't need to hear the things you want to hear from them. You're already full. And so you're able to look at them with mercy and overflow with love. That's how Christ is able to do what we're going to see him do. Look at verse 52. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village 
of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. Do we got the, I just want to show you this. So Jesus has been doing his ministry, the, the great majority of it, the last couple years up in Galilee. The normal way any self-respecting Jew would go from Galilee down to Jerusalem, almost everyone would take this path right here. Uh, that isn't a straight line, as you can see. The Samaritans were the arch enemies of the Jews in Jerusalem. So they would cross the Jordan River to the east and they would go through Perea and then right down here by Jericho, they would come over because they wouldn't want to be defiled. And if they were going to go right through, they would plan all their meals so they wouldn't have to eat defiled meals. But what Jesus is doing and what he did when he met the woman at the well is he went through Samaria to the surprise of his disciples. And so they go to make preparations for him. Let me fill in the background just a little bit of the Jews' relationship with the Samaritans because this is where this text really uh, comes alive to us. He, uh, <clears throat> in 721, so hundreds of years before Christ, 721 B.C., uh, you can read in 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 23. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn here and see this. We see where the animosity began between the Jews of Jesus' day and the Samaritans who were kind of like uh, mutts, you would say. They were kind of Jewish, but they had bad blood mixed in through marriage. And... In 2 Kings 17, starting in verse 23, um, we see that the Assyrians have taken over the northern kingdom. And verse 23, it says, The Lord removed Israel out of his sight as he had spoken by all of his servants and prophets. So Israel was exiled from their land, so from Jerusalem, to Assyria until this day. The king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutta, Eva, Hamath, Sepharvim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in the cities. So all these different cultures moved in there. And with that, they brought in their false religions because in verse 25 you see, and at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. And then in verse 33, it says, So they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods. So at first, it was full-on idolatry. Then they started worshiping Yahweh and were recognizing these other gods. That's what verse 33 says. So they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from whom they had been carried away. So the Samaritans became this type of follower of Yahweh, but they rejected the writings and the prophets and said only the Pentateuch is Holy Scripture. And 
Not only that, but they built a separate temple. And you can read about this in Ezra 4. And I'll, I'll read the first four verses of Ezra 4. Uh, here's what we read. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building the temple to the Lord. So now uh, they were allowed, Israel was allowed to come back into Jerusalem, begin rebuilding the temple. The Samaritans hear of this. Uh, and they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the fathers of the house and said to them, let us build with you for we worship your God as you do. And we, as we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Asherhaddon, the king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel said to them, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord. The God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. So here's where the war begins. You won't let us help you build the temple to Yahweh? Fine. They built the temple on Mount Gerizim, Gerizim uh, in 400 BC. <laughs> the Jews came in and destroyed their temple. So there's been a war going on between them. So when Jesus meets the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, as soon as he reveals that he knows she has five husbands, she perceives him to be a prophet. The, she has one question to ask. Which mountain do you worship on? Because this has been the war. They both say they love Yahweh, but the Jews worship here and they worship at Mount Gerizim. Uh, in fact, when the Jews were mocking Jesus, they say, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? So the Samaritans, all that to say, they didn't like each other. In fact, they despised each other. But Jesus wants to go through, sends his disciples ahead to make preparations. And we read in verse 33, but the people did not receive him because he set his face towards Jerusalem. Jesus is going to end up in Jerusalem on Passover when you sacrifice the Passover lamb. He's going to be the lamb of God. But they don't let him stay there because he's going to the wrong temple. He's got his face set towards Jerusalem. You following? All right. Verse 54, the disciples, James and John, saw it and they said, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them and they went on to another village. All right. The disciples, James and John, are a lot like you and I, I bet. At this time, they know Jesus is the Messiah. <laughs> and when they reject him, they say, let us call fire down from heaven. Let us incinerate them. This is righteous anger, right? We're mad because they're not glorifying you, Jesus. This is the definition of righteous anger, right? 
well, it's not like the heart of God. And they get rebuked by Christ. And most of you maybe know this. In Mark 3, Jesus gave these two brothers a nickname. James, the son of Zebedee, John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name um, Bonerges, which is sons of thunder. So it seems like Jesus has this sense of humor. All right, we're going to call you guys the sons of thunder. You just want to call fire out of heaven. And it doesn't come out of nowhere, though, this idea to call fire out of heaven on Samaria because they almost surely were familiar with what was going on in 2 Kings chapter 1. Why would they want to call fire out of heaven? Now, Ahaz, the king of Israel, fell through the lattice in his upper chamber. I'm just reading from 2 Kings uh, chapter 1, verse 2. So he falls out of his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick, so that he sent messengers telling them, go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from sickness. So here's what you have. You have the king of the northern kingdom, which headquarters was uh, in Samaria. He falls and he's calling to the God of Ekron to find out if he's going to get better. The angel of the Lord said to Elijah, the prophet of God, the Tishbite, arise and go to meet the messenger of the king of Samaria, Samaria and say to them, it is because... Is it because there is no God in Israel that you're going to inquire of Baal Zebub, the God of Ekron? So God's sending his messenger saying, so why are you going to the God of Ekron to find out if you're going to be better? Rather, he says, go tell him he's not going to be better. Go tell him he's going to die because of this injury. And then in verse 12, uh, so the messengers go back. He intercepts the messengers. They go back, tell him, and they said, he says, all right, I'm going to send 50 troops. Go get Elijah. I want to talk to him. So the 50 troops show up to Elijah, and Elijah answered, answered them, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. So this has already happened right in this region. And then the king sends 50 more. And guess what happens? They get consumed with fire. Then he sends 50 more. But this time, the leader of that 50 is smart and begs for mercy. Begs that he might receive mercy. And he does. And he doesn't consume those 50. It seems like they remembered the first half of the story and they forgot the second half of the story where God's mercy for the nations has been shown all throughout the Scriptures. And it's interesting. You can read Acts chapter 8, verse 25, where it says, so after Jesus has died and is risen, now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. 
They could have just killed all the Samaritans, but it isn't long these same disciples are going to, into these villages preaching the mercy of God seen in Jesus Christ. And Jesus is training his disciples to say, I don't see how you see. My mind is set differently than your mind is set. But if your mind is set on Jesus, here's the thing. You'll love your enemies. If you're in your word and you know the God of the Bible and you understand the gospel, you're not going to look at this world and build all these walls and have all these enemies, but you're going to see a mission field. The disciples were starving. They were hungry when Jesus was talking to the Samaritan woman. They were frustrated and surprised he was talking to the woman at the well. She goes and tells the people in her town she's found the Christ. And they, the disciples say, let's eat. And what does he say? Look, the harvests are plentiful. They're white. Look at all the people coming. Jesus saw opportunity for people to trust God and worship God and be saved. And they saw a bunch of enemies ruining their meal. Where you have your mind set will affect the way you view Muslims, will affect the way you view Democrats or Republicans or your neighbor next door who keeps, I don't know, dog keeps pooping in your yard. How you have your mind set determines the way you view those around you. And uh, my prayer is, is that your mind, your eyes are lifted up, set squarely on Christ. Your identity is secure in Him. And the love of Christ and the mercy of God is flowing through you as you have the ministry of reconciliation to them. Next week, we're going to see how having our minds set will keep us on course even when suffering comes. Father, thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for your heart, O Father, to have mercy on us, rebels against your will, that you had mercy on us to not defect from your determination to keep the promises made to Abraham. But that Christ fulfilled the promises and that the promises that are still to come are as sure as sure can be. Thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for Christ. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.